I've listened to Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys for years. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. living in the matrix what why what just popped up on my instagram oh <laughs> what just popped up on your instagram we're doing right we're, we're getting ready to record pet sounds brian wilson right yeah lead singer one of the formers i guess here in november of 2021 he had a documentary come out uh-huh. and elton john's in it i follow elton john on instagram i guess today is the day it became available over in europe for watching and so he made a post about it no way so so we're recording this episode on the day the Beach Boys documentary came out in Europe. Yeah, pretty much. That's cool. Hey, well, <laughs> how about that? That's a different kind of introduction. Oh, uh, yeah. Welcome! So <laughs> if you're interested in this episode and you live in Europe or anywhere else, I guess it's already out, you could go check out that Brian Wilson documentary. I haven't seen it. Me I neither. don't really endorse it, but maybe it's good. Elton John likes it. It's called uh, Brian Wilson, Long Promised Road. It's an hour and 35 minutes. The Brian Wilson documentary called Brian Wilson, You Can't Miss It. <laughs> Came out November 17th of 2021 for us Americans. Pretty recent. Either way, welcome to Spin It, the record-ranking podcast for people who would rather be watching Brian Wilson documentaries. <laughs> I'm James. That's me now, now that I know this exists. Oh, yeah. With me is Connor. Oh, uh, yeah, that's me. Yep. And we are talking about the Beach Boys themselves. Pigeons. Oh, pigeons. Nah, yeah, we got to talk about that too, don't we? Yeah, it came in the mail. It didn't come by pigeon. I'm a little disappointed. Okay, so to fill you all in, if you've missed the, the last couple of episodes, way back when we did our Weezer episode, episode 26, yeah, we had a spin that was about pigeon racing, and Connor sent away for information about the National Pigeon <laughs> Racing Association, and I guess I can't stop him from <laughs> briefly talking about it right now, so... Nope you're not interested scrub ahead a little bit but if you are interested in pigeon racing a little bit here, here's your moment yeah i got like it was a big beefy envelope so that's probably why i couldn't come by pigeon you know right didn't you say it was 32 pages it probably weighs more than a pigeon oh uh, so i got one two three four five pamphlets and two pieces of paper in the in the envelope and one of the pamphlets is 31 pages that's so much yeah, I'll be reading through that in my own time. It's called The Sport and Hobby of Racing Pigeons. So it's like a deep dive into their history. Here's a fun one. One of the pamphlets, uh, it says, you know, big flashy blue text, Race Horses of the Sky. I don't think I've ever heard of a pigeon Ra called that. <laughs> Race Horses of the Sky. Well, no, they're not. It's probably Pegasus, right? But go on. Well, that's fair, yeah. Uh, Pegasus, do they have horns? I guess sometimes they do, right? I was going to say that they're the race unicorns of the sky, but I guess a unicorn would just be a horse with a horn. Either way, that pamphlet, if you open it up, it shows you a bunch of stuff about, like, building a kitchen, uh, uh, building a pigeon coop. <laughs> a kitchen poop. Um. <laughs> that's what you almost said. They also sent me a list of all the Ohio clubs as of 2021. How many are there, uh, if you had to guesstimate on that list? I can tell you the exact number. It's 16. 16. Okay, that's actually... They gave me the club name, the first and last name of the, like, like I'm going to guess club president, uh, the city they're in, their zip code, a phone number, and a contact email. That's literally, I mean, 16, I guess, is a lot when you're talking about pigeon racing societies, but that's kind of lower than I was expecting. 
I mean, that's just Ohio, right? Yeah, that's true. Maybe Ohio's just not big on pigeon racing. Or maybe they are, and every other state has, like, one, maybe. Yeah. Then the last thing I think worth talking about is they also sent me a pink pamphlet that says price list of merchandise offered for sale. Merch? They have merch? Uh, Yeah, they have merchandise. <laughs> couple of items on here. So they have annual memberships. An adult membership is $30, okay? And if you're under seven, if you're 17 or under, it's only $10 for an annual membership. Okay. Oh, and that's U.S. rates. It's $40 if you're in Canada, Pam. Apparently, so well, why, sorry, Canadians. Why would a Canadian join the Ohio Pigeon Racing Club? Well, no, this is just the this is oh, just for national membership. Okay, the, yeah, the American Racing Pigeon Union membership. Why would a Canadian join the American Racing Pigeon? I don't know because it's right. still part of North America. Maybe they cover all of North America. Maybe. Oh, you can get a family membership for forty dollars, which is up to two adults and all children. Why wouldn't you just do that? I guess unless you don't have a family. That's, that's a pretty good reason not to get a family membership, yeah. Oh, apparel. They have caps, t-shirts. Their caps are $22. That feels like a weird price. Why 22 Jacket patches. They have mugs. I think I might buy... Oh, I can get a decal for $0.75. Cents. <laughs> $0.75? Cents? Man. Yep. But you have to be a member in order... It's a, it's a member oh, so decal. so it's $40 so and spend $0.75. <laughs> right might be worth it <laughs> might be a really cool decal wait what is that diploma oh no i can get a diploma what's a diploma why are they only 25 cents <laughs> i assume they're for birds like bird diploma uh, something like that probably because it gives me quantities and rates. Yeah, okay, I've Googled it. I've Googled it. And a homing pigeon diploma actually is to certify your pigeons. They've used them at least since 1913 is the oldest one I'm seeing. And is it like a like you know a pedigree? Yeah, I, I think so. James, we need to get a hold of the finance department, the Spinet finance department. I just realized there's lifetime memberships. $500, we can be a lifetime member of the American Racing Pigeon Union. Absolutely not. You know, maybe if the podcast really takes off. You know, if we we're, if we cut back the squirrel's nut budget, we might be able it's to... It's already almost nothing. <laughs> yeah, well... The whole reason we use squirrels is because we don't have a budget. Yeah, like we said the other day, the other episode, uh, they don't have a union, so what are they going to do? <laughs> Anybody out there listening, if you're a member of the American Racing Pigeon Union, let us know. Love to talk to you. Anyway, uh, Beach Boys. Yeah, anyway, the Beach Boys. Thanks for... <laughs> Making that actually much shorter than I anticipated it being. I don't know how much we will have ended up cutting out, but I expected that to be another Michael Jackson zoo fact. It was just like 45 minutes long. No, 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 no. Yeah, let's talk about the Beach Boys. <laughs> the Beach Boys are kind of the quintessential surf rock band, right? The California guys. Yeah. They formed in 1961, and the original lineup was made up of Brian Wilson, Dennis Wilson, and Carl Wilson. All three were brothers. Then Mike Love, their cousin, and Al Jardine, their friend. By the time Pet Sounds came about in 1966, they'd added Bruce Johnston to their lineup as well. And they're still active today, you know, from 1961 all the way up to today, even though... Well, those that are alive. Yeah, they've kind of split up, and Carl and Dennis Wilson have both passed away. So it's not going to be the same Beach Boys in 1966, you know, around in 2022. That's just not going to happen. There actually was a little bit of controversy over who had the rights to the Beach Boys name. Yeah? Uh, they had to kind of play tug-of-war with it. Between who? For a while, you know, Brian Wilson had it, Mike Love wanted it. It was kind of just a whole mess. 
Gotcha. Mike Love and Bruce Johnston are currently touring with that name. Oh, but Brian's not? No. So then what's this whole documentary about? It's about Brian Wilson. He's his own name. I mean, when you think of the Beach Boys, he's kind of the first one that comes to mind, along with Mike Love. I couldn't have named any of the Beach Boys before you said them all. And I still can't. Fair. <laughs> How familiar were you with the Beach Boys? It's impossible to me. In my brain, it feels impossible that you'd know no Beach Boys songs. Oh, absolutely not. Right. Kokomo, Barbara Ann, I Get Around, all the classics. Yeah. Barbara Ann was like our high school marching band, like go-to pep tune, mm-hmm. you know, so... I'm familiar with the Beach Boys, more popular singles, but they've never really been a band I've looked at anything outside of what's super popular. For a long time, they were that for me, too. I kind of grew up with one of their like 20 greatest hits CDs that I listened to all the time when I would fall asleep as a kid. Yeah. And that was my early, early introduction to them. And so when it came time, I started listening to albums every month. I was like, oh, the Beach Boys. What Beach Boys album should I start with? I had no idea. And Pet Sounds was where I jumped in to their discography officially. I see. Yeah, they have been a wildly successful band, one of the biggest of their era, to be honest. They've sold over 100 million records worldwide, and they were hugely popular. They're the American Beatles, right? Uh, Yeah, actually, more or less. They actually kind of had a friendly little rivalry going with the Beatles. You're a big Beatles fan, so I assume you are on the Beatles side of the rivalry. Uh, Yeah, generally I lean that way. But a fun little story is in 1965, the Beatles released their album Rubber Soul right brian wilson listened to it and said oh man that was great i want to do something like that and so then he puts out this pet sounds which is pretty much considered to be the beach boys best record and the beatles go oh my gosh when they hear it and that inspires them to make sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band which is like their best album right which is like their yeah so they kind of play this little tennis game where they just volley amazing albums back and forth but what i'm hearing is beach boys had the better album first beach boys yeah, they had the album that inspired... Go America! <laughs> right. George Martin, the Beatles producer, said without Pet Sounds, Sgt. Pepper never would have happened. He said Pepper was an attempt to equal Pet Sounds. Yeah. But yeah, to say that they're the American Beatles is really not an exaggeration. They've had seven top ten singles between 1963 and 64. So in two years. Yeah, seven top ten singles in two years. They were one of the first American bands to kind of do it all right the writing the playing the singing all the touring they were all in one it was the beach boys the whole package they had 36 songs break top 40 in the united states which is actually the most for any american band before the 2010s Mm. and the core five of the group the wilsons then love and jardine they were inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame in 1988 and they're also in the vocal group hall of fame but not bruce johnston no didn't you say he was added shortly after or like right before pet sounds or something yes well by the time pet sounds came around yeah a couple of years into their run but he wasn't included in the hall of fame i guess not dang that's just the way it goes the beach boys have been nominated for four grammys between 1966 and 2001 and they actually have never won any But they did kind of get the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Arguably better. Yeah, it is. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like it's almost like the consolation prize of Grammys. They're saying like, yeah, you should have won. You've done so much for music and and in your lifetimes you've achieved such greatness, but you've never won a Grammy. Take this. (laughs) Have this instead. Uh, Like when they gave Leonardo DiCaprio a Grammy for a crappy movie because he didn't win it for all of his good movies. well you're talking about an oscar but yeah exactly like oh, that. oh well right same thing yeah what is a grammy but an, an oscar for me what is it yeah 
Yeah, huh? It's an Academy Award. It's the same concept. <laughs> now, Pet Sounds specifically came out in May of 1966. It's surf music. It's psychedelic pop. It's a little bit of art rock. Definitely psychedelic pop. I got that vibe. Yeah. More psychedelic than you might expect from a, a Beach Boys type sound. But way more psychedelic than I expected. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Pet Sounds actually made it into the National Recording Registry in 2004. Add it to the list. I know, we've had a lot of those historic albums at this point. At least, I think, five. We've officially moved into two-hand territory. Two-hand. Yeah, if you're counting on your fingers, this makes the end of hand one. (laughs) Switch hands now. But I think that's all the background information you're going to need about Pigeons and about this album. So let's go ahead and get the mixtaper in. There's never too much background knowledge about Pigeons. Honestly, always too much, if if I'm being honest. But... Let's go ahead and do Factor Spin. Let's get the mixtaper out here and see what he knows, or at least has made up, about the Beach Boys. Hey, it's me, the mixtaper. I hope this is the week that one of us pulls ahead of the other. I'm tired of it being tied. Yeah, I know. Maybe this will be the the non-50-50 week. At this point, I don't care who it is. I just want it to be someone. Well, if that's the case, you should just take a dive on one of your questions. No, 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 no. Anything, I'm going to cheat. I just thought I'd ask. Uh, you see the perk of uh, making the game and refereeing the game, kind of like being judge, jury, executioner. I can just cheat and give myself the points. <laughs> cheat and make it season two <laughs> for no reason. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's no, no, there's a reason. The reason was I was losing. <laughs> right. Hit me with some facts. I know there's an answer. Let's do it. Up first, Dennis Wilson was once roommate with a cult leader. With a cult leader? No way. Okay. <laughs> yep. Okay. Uh... <laughs> Starting off strong. Man, you get a lot of roommate facts, don't you? Mm-hmm. What cult leader? Someone famous? In 1968, Dennis became friends with an aspiring musician. Uh, wasn't very good, but he always seemed to have plenty of girls around for him and Dennis to party with. Oh, okay. Not anybody noteworthy then. You don't have a name or a or anything? Yeah, not really. What was the cult about? What did they believe in or worship or like do that was culty? Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Let's, let's Right, that's why I'm asking about it because I a little more information about the about the background of, of all this. Alright <laughs> Alright, fine. I'll put that one on the back burner. So they started rooming together in nineteen sixty eight, you said after this album came out. How long were they roommates? For one spring and one summer, uh this cult leader and his companions moved in with Dennis in his Sunset Boulevard home. Okay, why? Why did they move in? Needed a place to stay. They said they were both working on music. They kind of become friends. They like to party together. Sure, okay. Party so much that Mike Love, another member of the band, was creeped out by Dennis's new friend and refused to hang out with him, especially after he and his wife split when she revealed that she was having an affair with Dennis. Oh. Yeah, Dennis and Mike Love's then-wife would sneak off, you know, to do what cheating people do, and would leave, you know, they'd need a babysitter for Mike Love's kids, and they would uh, leave some of the random women that would be over-partying in charge of the children. That's kind of horrible. Yeah, Uh, and here's where it gets real juicy, and I've kind of been burying the lead a little bit. You have. I've I've specifically asked you to unbury the lead, and you've refused, so (laughs) out with it. I just really wanted to set up all these details real fast, because... It's a follow today. You're not burying the lead. It's a follow. Yeah. Uh, On several occasions, they got this aspiring musician's companion, Susan Atkins, to babysit. And if you don't know... Susan Atkins would later go on 
to participate in a series of murders, including the murder of Sharon Tate as part of the Manson family. Uh-huh. Yeah, you said that name and I recognized it. The Manson. Uh-huh. Yeah. It all ties together, you know, because earlier you talked about Leonardo DiCaprio winning an Oscar and he was in the movie Once Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood and that movie was about the Manson family. You know what? That's suspicious. So what I'm telling you is Dennis Wilson's ex-roommate is Charles Manson. <laughs> the Charles Manson. The Charles Manson. That's tough. That's tough because I know about the affair. I know that there was tension there and they, they split up and stuff because obviously like the band was kind of distressed <laughs> for those couple years when they were making music. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I but to make it the Charles Manson. The Charles Manson. And then to just call him a cult leader <laughs> yeah, he's really I, mean of you he's like the cult leader he's the cult leader <laughs> and because of this affair and the fact that he was living with freaking charles manson susan atkins ended up babysitting mike love's kids i know for a fact that susan atkins is involved in in this story what i don't know is if charles manson lived in the house i'm gonna go ahead and say fact because so much of what you've said i know to be true you're going with fact, and you're counting on me not switching out a couple details? Yeah, I'm counting on it. You counted correct. This is a true fact. Dennis Wilson oh lived for gosh. a spring and summer with Charles freaking Manson. Did he ever talk about it afterwards? Like, after stuff came to light, did he speak on the experience? Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I didn't write down any of that, but I definitely saw in my research some spots where they talked about it. That would be so weird. I'm- Manson is so intertwined with the Beach Boys. Like, they produced one of his songs or something. They performed one of his songs that maybe he wrote or something, but changed the name. Like, they're deeply entwined with Manson's music career. Interesting. Yeah, I had no idea. Well, obviously, I didn't either, but it was... I came across the babysitting fact about Susan Atkins and the like cheating affair and everything. And then from there, when I was researching and fact checking that, I realized that the reason she babysat was because she was living in the house with Manson, who was living in the house with Dennis Wilson. I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a lot to take in. Yeah. That's crazy. But you got it right. So good for I you. I did. Yeah. Of all the facts that I've missed and gotten right on this show, that's a, that's a correct one. That's a win. Well, up next, John Stamos is a member of the band. <laughs> this, wow, you're really pulling out all the stops today. <laughs> yeah. John Stamos is a member of the band. All right, um, <laughs> when did he join? In 1985. Oh, okay. I don't know much about John Stamos's other, you know, doings. Was that before he was... Yes, for the audience who might not know, John Stamos is a pretty famous uh, actor. Yeah, was that before or after Full House, the Beach Boys? So 1985 would have been before, because Full House started in 1987, I believe. And he was like a full-on member? Like, they they added him in full-time, recording, touring, everything? Uh, I wouldn't say full-time, but he performed with the band at many festivals and was in several of their music videos. He mainly played the drums for them. Okay, so he was more of like a touring member, auxiliary guy. Yeah, he was more of an auxiliary member, but member nonetheless. Okay, how long did he carry on with the band? Presently. Still to now. Mm-hmm. To now. Still in it. Most recently, he performed with them in 2018 when he hosted the a Capital Force special on PBS, and they performed in front of the White House. Wow. Um, that's a lot. That's a heck of a fact you got going here. How did he get involved with them? How'd they find him? How'd he find them? Yeah, I don't know how he got involved with them. I just know that he did. I don't know that he did. That's true. Could be, could be making it up. If I'm being a straight shooter here, I yeah, I'm doubting this fact. 
That seems like a thing I would know, doesn't it? <coughs> I don't know, does it? I don't know. I don't know enough about John Stamos, and I guess I don't know enough about the Beach Boys if this is true. But I'm going to say spin. Go with spin. But this is a bold lie for you to make up. Like, if I even had a hint of this one being true, I would have said true. So for if, now I'm going to stick with my guns here. Spin. Well, your guns are wrong. This is a fact. John oh, wow. Stamos has been a member of the band. Such a member of the band that in 1992, he sang lead vocals on the new version of Forever for their album Summer in Paradise. No way. Yeah, that same song was also featured twice on Full House. It was sung at his character's wedding and then also for his character's twin sons when they were born. Wow, I had absolutely no idea. He's also in the 1992 music video titled Forever by Jesse and the Rippers. Huh, all right, well you got me there, hands down. I can't even contest it. Uh, I'm glad, that was the one I was afraid you'd know, so I'm glad that that's the one that got you of all of them. If I do lose this week, I can lose a happy mixtaper. Well, that's unusual. Yeah, good. Keep that positivity. Glass half full. (laughs) My third fact for you, the band is Band for Life from the San Diego Zoo. (laughs) Yeah, um, now that's where they shot the album cover for Pet Sounds, is it not? Correct, it is. I know there's a lot of talk around this album cover. So the album cover, let's just touch on it briefly, it seems to be relevant here. Sure. Is the band feeding a bunch of goats. Yep. And, you know, the goats are jumping all up on them. They've got their goat food, whatever. Kind of unusual for an album cover. But uh, let's let's dig a little more in here. So they're banned for life from the zoo. What have they done? Mistreated the animals. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. This is a sad fact. Uh, here's, a, here's a bit of a small laundry list of things that they're that the zoo claims they did. Dur- wait, to be clear, during this cover shoot? During this cover shoot, yes. Oh, boy. Yeah, uh, hit me with it. Uh, one band member bounced a carrot off of the head of one of the tigers. Tigers? Uh, oh, yep. Another band member tried to stick the head of one of the antelopes through the iron bars. They would walk around carrying puppies and baby chickens and would then just set them down out in the open and walk away. No. When they got bored with them. awful and bizarre. Yeah. And then, you know, just had an awful time with the goats that they actually ended up taking the photos with. Yeah, I can believe that. Uh, the goats are kind of all up in their business, and if it if they don't care as much as you make it sound like they don't care, I could guess that would get pretty ugly. Yeah. So why didn't anyone at the zoo stop them? I mean, obviously they had witnesses to all this. The zoo says they tried. They tried? What went wrong? The zoo says that the band's manager and the photographer were, were ni- uh, they, they released like a whole public like newspaper article about the incident afterwards, announcing that they were banning them from, for life. And they said that the cameraman and the art director and everything were awfully nice guys, but things just got out of hand and they couldn't control the situation. That I can believe. Uh, the mid-60s were an era of abundant substance for the Beach Boys. <laughs> the Beach Boys claim that the zoo is exaggerating. Okay, well... Either way, have they stuck by that band? Have the Beach Boys ever tried to go back to the zoo? Either, you know... Brian Wilson says he's never been back. I just wondered if they pushed the envelope and tried it. <laughs> yeah. Bruce Johnston actually said in, a, in an interview after the photo shoot that they were the ones suffering during the shoot, not the animals. Because the, the goats would jump all over you and bite them, and that one of the goats ate his radio. I'm sorry. What? (laughs) That's what he said. He says, one of them ate my radio. The zoo said we were torturing animals, but they should have seen what we had to go through. We were doing all the suffering. I kind of doubt that side of the story uh, for a couple reasons. So is John Stamos, as a member of the Beach Boys, is he banned for life from the San Diego Zoo? Does it? I would think so. I feel like that would transfer to him. Yeah, you're banning the entire 
uh, group. I guess everyone that comes onto the label after would still be gra- grandfathered in. Sorry, John Stamos. Sorry about it, yeah. Guilty by association. John Stamos, if this is the way that you found out that you were banned from the San Diego Zoo, I'm so sorry. Yeah, but let us know. (laughs) We'd love to know if we're the ones that broke that news to you. I would love to be the one that breaks that news to you, to be honest. (laughs) I'm going to say this is a fact. You're going to go with fact. Yeah, I'm guessing they weren't the most considerate young lads in Mm. 1966 (laughs) or 5 or whenever this cover shoot happened. Considerate young lads, they were not. This is a true fact. What a dumb sentence you just said. Yeah, it is true. All right. They threw carrots at tigers? Yep. Bounced one off of one of the tiger's heads. Do you think... I'm not condoning this in any way. Do you think if we did that, we'd get kicked out of the zoo for life? Probably. Get a spin it ban on the San Diego Zoo. Okay, but instead of doing bad things to animals, can we join the Beach Boys and get ourselves banned from the zoo? Do you think That'd that's be a- way better, yeah, because then we don't have to do anything mean to animals, but we yeah. can still get what we want. And that's a- Can we just ask the zoo to ban us? Can we tweet them and be like, hey, can you ban us for life? I honestly, we might do that. Let's see if we can get... <laughs> we should absolutely see, do that. Let's see if we can get banned like the Beach Boys. <laughs> okay, I got that one right. I got that one right. I'll take that true. Yeah, you got that one right. Heck yeah. Looking good. That means I'm going to miss the next one. All, once again, it all comes down to the final fact. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And it's a doozy. Brian Wilson's soul was trapped in a painting. Boy, is it a doozy. <laughs> all right, so my first thought is... What? <laughs> What do you mean his soul was trapped in a painting? Did he go to an art museum and like lock eyes with the Mona Lisa and like stare at it for two? He's like, felt like my soul was leaving. What's the deal? So <clears throat> Wilson collaborated with Van Dyke Parks and his manager, David Andrell, who happened to be an executive at Label Brothers Records. And he also happened to be an aspiring artist. Yeah. So did he paint Brian Wilson? Is that what happened? Yes, he did. But from memory. So... <laughs> Andrel, or Andrel, I don't really know how his name's pronounced. I'm awful with names. Uh, painted a photo of Wilson from memory and just kind of filled the background with random like dots and flowers and little sun shapes and stuff like that to fill the space. Little, yeah, psychedelic stuff, sure. Sure. But when he showed it to Wilson, Wilson became convinced that his soul was trapped in the painting. When you say became convinced, uh, like legitimately became convinced or just like said it as a hyperbole. Yeah, no, very legitimately became Like convinced. he was concerned that his soul had left him. Very much so. What? <laughs> so so what then did he think were the effects his soul leaving him was having on him in that moment? Is he like, oh my gosh? Uh, I don't really know. Oh, okay. Now, did he ever get it back? I mean, what was his next course of action? Do you destroy the painting and risk destroying your soul? I what do you do? Uh, I don't know. I'm not a nu- numerologist. You're not a numerologist. What's a numerologist? Numerology is the pseudoscientific belief in a divine or mystical relationship between a number and one or more coinciding events. It is also the study of the numerical value of the letters in words, names, and ideas. It is often associated with the paranormal alongside astrology and similar to divinatory arts. So Brian Wilson had a magic number? Yep, that's pretty much what I'm telling you. Several of them. What was the number? I don't know. Tell me the number was 29. I don't know what the magic number was. But Wilson says he counted the amounts of the different objects in the background and that most of the numbers came that he got when adding them up were significant to him in his life. And because of that, the painting must have captured his soul somehow. Oh, gosh. That's a a thing there. That's a, a wild thing. Yeah. I only got one more piece of information for you. 
Oh, okay, yeah. You, uh, We mentioned that he was extremely distressed about this. Yeah. Well, it was stressful enough that Anarol eventually quit his job under duress because of the incident. He, like, harassed the guy that made the painting so much that he quit? That he That he quit. Does he still believe this? Did he ever stop? Do we have any information on that? As far as I know, his soul is still trapped in there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> maybe he talks about it in the documentary. I'm definitely going to go watch it. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> British audience, you know, your European audience, you can find out tonight. American <laughs> audience, you might already know. But is this true? Brian Wilson's the kind of guy that would do this, isn't he? I don't know. I'm going to say true. I don't know. So you think I've gone all facts this week? I think you've gone all facts, and I think you're really rolling the dice how would you make this up? How I don't I just don't understand how you would make this up and think yes I can present this in a way that he will believe it's true even though it's totally fake. Exactly like I've done. Oh man, is it a spin? It is a fact. You got it. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Wow. I worried you there for a second. Well, you kind of said yeah. You it wasn't very flashy. Yeah, no, I purposely phrased it in a way that made you think it was a spin. You're even spinning your truths now. Yeah, uh, yeah, he absolutely thought this. I went all facts on you this wow, week. they were all really good facts. I mean, this was a loaded episode of Factor Spin. Yeah, that's why I didn't feel the need to lie. I was like, I don't know what to cut. Those were so good. <laughs> wow, that's a good round. We finally broke the two and two curse. Finally, and like I said, I can I can lose this round, or not this round, you know, round two still going strong, but I can lose this instance a factor spin happy because I gotcha on the one I was most concerned that you would already know. Yeah, the Stamos one. Well, good game. We'll see you next week when you can, you know, whip up some more facts and spins for us. Absolutely. See you next week. Yeah. All right. That's the mixtaper. Welcome back, Connor. And we kind of already touched on the album art in that fact about the goats. So yeah, I really don't think we have too much else to say about it. It's a photo that got them banned from the zoo. Yep, and apparently one of those goats has a radio in its stomach. I mean, maybe at this point. We don't know if this was before (laughs) or after the incident in question. That's true. Very interesting, though. Apparently, so, you know, surfing was like, surf music was like the craze back then, right? That's why they were so popular. Yeah. And I guess another thing that was kind of becoming the craze at about the time this album came out was, was animals. And so that's part of what led to this album being called Pet Sounds and them using goats on their cover was they were trying to jump on that train, you know, before anybody else could. Uh-huh. And specifically, they said that they were trying to beat out the rock group The Animals. Oh. <laughs> you know, they wanted to do an album related to animals before the animals could get around to it. Yeah, I guess that would make sense. I think they showed them with the tiger. Like, how cool, I like, as messed up as it is to mess with an animal like that, how cool of a shot would it have been if they got a picture of that carrot bonking off the tiger's head? It would not have been very cool at all. It might have made just as little sense as this album cover. I, I mean, I think it would have looked cooler to see a carrot sitting on top of a tiger's head while the tiger's like, what the? F-? I think out of all the <laughs> album covers we've done and talked about and all the albums that have accompanied them, this is the one that undersells the album that it's attached to the most. Yeah, they've said that in interviews that... Uh, this album actually performed a little poorly financially in terms of sales because, and they attribute that to the album art. They said that a lot of people took a look at it and thought it wasn't going to be any good. They said, that's why you don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, it kind of sucks as album art. I got to be honest. I mean, mm-hmm. it's iconic now for what the record's become, but just on its own, isolated in a vacuum, it's a little rough. Yeah. But if you can make it past that cover art, you put the needle down into the groove, you're going to get slammed with... I mean, a real gem of a record. Well. You don't think? People, listen. 
<laughs> this is the record that inspired Sgt. Pepper. Uh, I was shocked when we found that out. Really? That's interesting. It, I have two just disclaimers I feel the need to make before we get into this track list. Sure. The first one is, and I, I'm just going to read you my verbatim note uh, as I got to the last song on the album. I'm so excited to talk about this one. As I finished the last song, I wrote a note in all caps. I said, oh no, I just realized that the majority of my complaints might be because I listened to the remastered mono version versus the remastered stereo version. Well, that's just a matter of preference because, you know, the mono is what it sounded like initially when it came out, right? That's the original mix. Yeah. The stereo mix, I think, does sound better for today, but it's really not much different. I, I, I just started one of the songs in stereo mix and I like one of the ones that I really complained about. And I think part of my complaints about how it sounded can be attributed to the mono. It's the bad mix. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that that happens. And so my score might not reflect what it could have been had I listened to the stereo version. But they put the mono one first, to be fair, and I didn't notice that there was both versions. Yeah, that's fair enough. My other disclaimer is that this is a great example of why I'm a mixtape guy and not an <laughs> album guy. This album does really run the gamut. I think this is the first album we've done that really highlights that. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Because like I'm a fan of, like we talked about earlier, the major Beach Boy hits, Wouldn't It Be Nice, which happens to be on this album. Barbara Ann, you know, all the super popular ones. Most of these aren't that. No, no, there aren't. <laughs> there are a few, mind you. There are a couple of big standouts. There's a couple, yeah. There's a couple big standouts, and they're probably going to be the ones that I liked. <laughs> and the rest of them, I kind of didn't. And I don't know how much of it was the mono mix and how much of it was I just didn't like it. I think a lot of it is the first listen problem, too. It could be. A majority of these songs are growers. They, they take a bit. Mm, gotcha. And it's also, you just have to be in the right, I guess, mindset to, to dig into this mid-60s pop, psychedelic pop especially. Sure. A lot of these songs are really short, really bite-sized and, yeah, I and like punched that. up. Yeah, it's a quick album to get through. I have a lot of good things to say about this album that we'll get to as we go through it, but I also have a lot I didn't like. On Spotify, the mono and stereo mix versions are combined together with bonus tracks, and there are only it's only an hour and 16 minutes. That's twice the length of the album plus more. <laughs> yeah. It's not an album that's going to take up a lot of your time. I think this album may also, to this point, be one of the most musically complex albums that we've done. You know, it's no four chords of pop. It's no, you know... Yeah, the music was the best part of it. One, four, six, five. And it's no three chords in the truth country music. I'm going to tell you right now that 80% of my complaints are about them actually singing. The music, like, instruments and the lyrics themselves were good. It was literally, like, I guess how they were singing it and what melodies they were singing it with. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let's jump into it. Let's jump into it. Yeah, this album is very wonderfully musically complex, to be honest. They've got all kinds of like diminished major sevenths, sixth ninths, augmented chords, the works. There's so much happening musically, and they managed to blend it all together. I mean, Brian Wilson is kind of really, really good at using those elements of songwriting effectively. Because that's kind of what the Beach Boys made their fame on, was their songwriting ability. You know... They weren't necessarily a super flashy band or very like performative to see live. They really made their bread and butter on music theory, on strong harmonies, on complicated chord changes, just stuff you wouldn't hear a lot, especially in this era of their music. Yeah. They really dug into that. 
Wouldn't It Be Nice is the first track on the record, and it was released as the third single. God Only Knows was its B-side. And wouldn't it be nice if the rest of the album was like it? <laughs> I mean, it would. <laughs> wouldn't It Be Nice is one of the greatest songs, maybe of all time. It's certainly a contender, right? It's a great song. I don't know about of all time, but of this era. Of this era, for sure. Brian Wilson said that when they were writing this song, they had a vibration in mind. He said they felt really good about this record. It was one of the band's attempts to appeal to youth, right? Tony Asher, one of their co-writers, and a co-writer of this song even, he said Brian was constantly looking for topics that kids could relate to. Even though he was dealing with all these advanced score charts and arrangements, he was still incredibly conscious of this commercial thing. And so that's why this song has kind of been such an enduring hit, is because it's a song about being young. Wouldn't it be nice if we were older, if we could live the way adults live and, and get the things that we want like that? It's actually experienced a pretty big resurgence in the 21st century. It's one of the ones that's picked back up. I feel like this idea of wishing you were older is something that every youth goes through in every era. Yeah. That's an idea that everyone experiences as they get older. Because everybody goes through that weird limbo stage where they're still a kid and, you know, don't don't really have the respect or experience of the older people but also don't want to be lumped in with like being a kid anymore right yeah there's always that weird limbo stage oh and you've heard it a million times in in all the coming of age movies and music and tv shows it's a trope but it wasn't a trope at this time like that's such an idea and to put it in this way is very clever to me right this way is about a relationship right yeah it is wouldn't it be nice to live together in the kind of world where we belong it wouldn't be better when we could say good night and stay together right it's about this young couple who has to be separated at the end of the day don't want to keep saying goodbye at the end of all their dates <laughs> yeah wouldn't it be nice if we could wake up after you know spending the day together we could hold each other close just to be around the other person all the time and it's a very it's a very genuine expression of love to project it into the future like that to say i want to experience this you know later in my life with you i want to get to that point in life with you and i wish we were there right now yeah. so we could have it already especially i mean you see that a lot in that line in the later on in the song right before the outro you know it seems the more we talk about it it only makes it worse to live without it but let's still talk about it <laughs> right it annoyed me that three of the four lines there ended in it i figured it might yeah does it really annoy you? Is that not one of the best lines on this not album? Really. I was going to say. It's a great line. It just, it's a great sentiment. I just wish there was a better way, like a better ending word. The first two I'm fine with. The third, but let's talk about it, always feels kind of a little tacked on to me. But it needs to be that way, right? Because it's very more so do they like, but let's talk about it is just such a bland, nothing line that then sets you up for that. But wouldn't it be nice? Like they really like subdue it real down on that kind of baby line. To then really punch you with that last one and it'd be nice. Yeah. Oh, this is one of the punchier songs. Yeah. I love the way that it kicks off the album with the very dreamy guitars at the very beginning, which fits perfectly with this idea of hoping for things, right? It feels very much like a daydream. And then there's just the crack of the snare drum once, and then you're just smack dab right in the middle of it. It's a very cool effect. And like I said, they do a really good job on this song instrumentally, giving you a lot of rises and falls. Um, you know, they'll... They'll race to a peak and then bring you right back down and then they'll race forward again. They're doing a lot of intensity changes on this song and I like it. Intensity and tempo. I mean, it goes fast, slow, fast, slow. And yep. They use that very, very well. It's not just a song that you could set a, a metronome or a click track to and forget about. Yeah. We come from the crazy good start of Wouldn't It Be Nice and then we get into the second song, one that I'm pretty sure you haven't heard before. <laughs> right? Am I wrong? Mm-mm. 
You still believe in me. The first, what I call, drug trippy dream song. It absolutely is. Yeah, and they kick it off <laughs> right away. Do you remember the intro of that song? Have you ever heard anything quite like that? No, I hadn't. No, I didn't think so. I'll give you that it was unique, but... You know why you haven't heard anything like that? Why? What they did to make that song was they had one person at the keys of the piano, and then one person was in the back of the piano plucking the strings. So the person at the keyboard was just holding down all the notes and stuff to make sure they would ring properly. And then someone was leaned over the piano with a bobby pin and a paper clip and all kinds of other things plucking the notes what? instead of hitting them with the hammers on a piano. That's crazy. Yeah, so that is why it sounds so unnatural or so unusual. Yeah. So foreign to your ear because you recognize the instrument, but definitely not the method that they're using to play it yeah uh this song was a classic uh careful what you wish for moment for me you know the last i like to complain about repetitivity and like too long choruses or doing a chorus too many times repetitivity uh-huh this song the chorus is one line and yeah and it's, it's a slow so slow and drawn out and i was like no like I want smaller choruses and less used choruses, but not on a song like this. This song's too like slow and lethargic. Lethargic. Like they found a way to take what I wanted, but yet still make it awful. It's not awful. No, I like it a lot. Ah, no, I didn't like it. There's some really interesting key decisions here. At the end of the chorus, they end on a very jarring major chord, and I like that a lot. Musically, just... it was nice. I'll yeah. give you that music again. I'll I'll sing the praises about their instrumentation, like what the instruments are doing all day long. It was great for that. That was the highlight of this album for me. All of my problems are in them actually singing. Yeah, no, I do believe that. <laughs> and then occasionally the lyrics. But. Lyrically, it's kind of a self-deprecation song. I have my problems and we have problems, but somehow you still believe in me. Like, I'm trying so hard, I can't make it, but you're still here. Part of it is, and again, it seemed like it was happening less in the little snippet of the stereo version I quickly played. And I plan to go listen to the entire stereo version for my second listen through, I always do, to see what my thoughts are on it. I think you should. But it, a lot of it just felt like the way Brian Wilson sings with it in mono mode, like that falsetto that he's so like known for. Yeah. I don't care for it as much on slower songs like this than I do, than like I did on Wanted It Be Nice. Like it was great on Wanted It Be Nice, but on these slower, more lethargic songs that a lot of this album is, it just wasn't doing it for me. But it seemed like it was better in stereo. And so I don't know. They have a whole chance to round out the sound more, flesh out places where it's lacking in the mono mix and, and mess with the balance ear to ear just to make it a little easier on you. But yeah, well, part of it is you talk about his falsetto. In a faster song, it's going to flash by quicker. Right. But here, you get that outro, I want to cry. Bah, 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 bah. Like, you just get it forever and ever and ever. What did you think of the outro? The hook on repeat? With the honking clown horn? I was like, <laughs> what? Yeah, it really gets you, doesn't it? <laughs> Like I really liked that. That was the best part of the song. Uh, and they got me with the fake ending. They got me with the fake I ending. I thought they might have. <laughs> One thing this album frequently gets praised for is its use of a wide variety of unique instruments. I caught some of them. Including, but not limited to, dog barks, the clown horn, train tracks, all kinds of just a mess throughout here. A hodgepodge. And it's it's cool. Sometimes it feels unnecessary, but I think it's part of the album's charm and what's made it such a uh, curiosity. I, I typically liked it. In these songs that I just wasn't digging, those were standout moments for me. Whereas maybe in a song that I was really jiving with, they might have felt unnecessary. On this, they were a nice reprieve from what I was getting. Well, and because they use so many 
different instruments and stuff on this album. The next track, That's Not Me, is one of the only songs on the record where only the band members play instruments. Almost all the other songs have outside contributions, but That's Not Me is one of the only ones that's just the Beach Boys. This was the song where I finally started to realize I wanted less of the slower, melodic, wavy songs and more fast-paced stuff. (laughs) You didn't get much of it. My very next note was... That felt wrong to type. Yeah, it's... (laughs) I was just like, I can't believe I'm asking for less melodic stuff. Yeah, Mike Love is the lead singer on this track. He's got a good voice. He's got a good sound. Yeah, they all have good sound. They all have a good voice. Yeah, that's their whole shtick, the harmonies and stuff. Yeah, their harmonies are great. Specifically the one in the second chorus. Yeah, I like it a lot. The choruses on this song are some of my favorite. The, The shift between the verse and the chorus on this song is one of my favorite transitional Mm. bits between the whole album. I like that all these songs are pretty uniquely like Beach Boys. They all have that same Beach Boys sound and tone to them, but they don't really sound alike. They do. As somebody who's only heard their super, super popular stuff, like I said, this was a bit of a, I'm going to use the word disappointment. Well, um, you're coming from greatest hits. I guess I just, you say that this is, you know, so much of their iconic sound. Uh I didn't realize so much of their iconic sound was this dreamy, wavy stuff and not wanting it be nice. (laughs) (laughs) right yeah this is kind of the evolution well you get the early beach boys right the dance 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 the um surf and safari all the really yeah punchy like plucky surf rock and that's what i was used to then yeah we move into this era which is the wobbly drug stuff and uh it kind of sticks around for a bit it doesn't really go away and i don't like it the percussion on this song was a standout Yeah, it was. And I love the way that they utilize it because like I talked about that change into the chorus where they go, you know, I'm a little bit scared because I haven't been home in a long time. They drop off the drums and they drop the tambourine and everything gets a little more loose and free flowing. But then they know when to bring it back in to keep that rhythm going, to keep the intensity up. Yeah, it's very well arranged. And once again on this song, they really shoot for relatability. Did I mention that uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice was in my top three? No, you didn't. It is, if that wasn't obvious. I talked so (laughs) highly about it. Yeah, it's a weird thing for you to think of now on this song that I'm pretty sure is not in your top three. No, it's absolutely not. But it's part of what made me realize it. I was like, (laughs) I was sitting here going, man, I don't have a top three for a while. And then I realized, wait, did I mention that the first song was the top three? Yeah, you didn't. (laughs) Track four. Don't talk, put your head on my shoulder. What did you think about that one? That's uh, way more traditionally ballad. You know, it's not quite as dragging as you still believe in me, but it's still down there. Yeah, it, again, it's just the the way they're singing kills it for me. The, this is a very falsetto song. It might be more up there in the stratosphere than you still believe in me. And it, it's not even that. It's like, I don't mind that he's falsetto. It's just like I said, I described it as echoey, ethereal, floaty. It's very floaty. Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder is the floatiest song or one of them on this record. Maybe top two or three for that style. Brian Wilson says, and I quote, It's one of the sweetest songs I ever sang. I have to say I'm proud of it. The innocence of youth in my voice. I think that's what people liked. Do you think Do you think the innocence of Brian Wilson's voice is what draws people to this song? Because I, I read that quote, and I did have to kind of scoff at it a little bit. I really don't think the innocence of youth in Brian Wilson's voice is what makes this song appealing <laughs> at all. I like Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder. I think it is a, a sweeter ballad, maybe one of their more underrated ballads. Uh, yeah, I had mostly positive notes on this one. There was that great melodic run at the beginning of the chorus. Yeah, this is enough. They use half steps really well in their vocal melodies, and I like that. Yeah. It's not common, and it's a good change. This is one of their better bridges 
I thought as well. I like their listen, listen, listen. Yeah. The pacing along with the way they're singing just wasn't doing it for me. Yeah, so we do. We're kind of alternating, aren't we, between faster song, slower song, faster song, slower song? Not really. I would say we haven't had a truly faster one since Wouldn't It Be Nice. That's Not Me is pretty pretty grooving. It's got a good push. Ah, not really. I think That's Not Me gives the illusion of being slow sometimes when the percussion cuts out. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Well, the next song is i think a, a more proper up-tempo song i'm waiting for the day yes was this a pick pick me upper for you uh it definitely picks up for the most part it does slow down a bit for verse one in the first chorus yeah i'm i'm waiting for the day feels almost like nothing special to me in in a in a bit of a way it was special to me because it was closer to what i wanted sure uh, <laughs> sure yeah I, my first note was this is what i'm looking for that intro was great, but then we got into that first verse in the second chorus, and I was like, ooh, not digging this slowed down bit, but I'll let it play out. You know, I'm skeptical, but we'll see where it goes. And then they punch it into, you know, 11th gear for verse two, and I was like, okay, yep, that was worth it. The contrast was worth it. Yeah, it's another song that pushes and pulls, ebbs and flows really well. Uh, not as well as Wouldn't It Be Nice. Okay. Well, that's a high bar you're setting. Well, it's what I'm used to. That's what where my bar, that's where my average bar has been for the Beach Boys my entire life. I do think the best part of this song for me, hands down, is that outro, right? You didn't think that I could sit around and let him work, watch him take you. You didn't think like it that really gets me going every single time. And I like I kind of wish the song had a little bit more of that, but it's hard to tell whether any more of that would have been overdoing it. It's almost kind of more special if they just save it for the fade out. It's just kind of a cookie cutter mid 60s love song to me except for all the cool things that it does musically lyrically i'm unimpressed for the most part yeah same well track six is another thing we haven't had for a little while on this podcast instrumental let's go away for a while it's an instrumental track do you recognize that phrase let's go away for a while have you heard that before anywhere this feels like a trap it, it might be yeah this is a pop quiz where have you heard that before let me let me rephrase it in pop quiz form was it on weezer it is. Feels felt like a Weezer title. It's not a Weezer title, but it's the first line of Weezer's song Holiday. That's right. I remember that. Because like we talked about, Rivers Cuomo and Weezer are very Beach Boys inspired. They're big Beach Boys fans. This is the song that confirmed for me that my issue was with them actually singing. Because like, I love this. Like, and when, when I took away them singing, I was like, yeah, this is great. It was slower still and dreamier, but they weren't singing over top of it. And I was like, I'm okay with it now. Yeah. And isn't it interesting? Is it not a bold choice for a band that is known for their vocal harmonies and singing? I think the two instrumental tracks that they put on this album are a great way for them to make the statement, like, we're a legitimate band. Yeah, they're instrumental instrumental tracks again to me you keep talking about how they're known for their harmonizing all that and i understand that but to me in a scenario where i had to break it out into categories like you do for your score instruments and production would have been the uh, by far the highest score for me oh don't worry it's by far the highest score for me too <laughs> good as it should be brian actually he calls let's go away for a while the most satisfying piece of music he ever made uh, i'll disagree with him on that one but it's good i think i will too But yeah, as long as he's happy with it, I'm happy with it. Now, you're a Beach Boys Greatest Hits listener. Have you heard Sloop John B. before? I absolutely have. I thought so. It's one of their bigger hits. It's one of the singles from the album. And it's the next Connor Top 3. So a lot of the lyrics for Sloop John B. are from a West Indies folk song 
called the John B. Sales, which has kind of been a bit of a sea shanty for quite some time. One thing people have talked about is how it's kind of this anti-tropical paradise lyrics in traditional tropical paradise Beach Boys style, right? This whole album, I don't know, I haven't mentioned it yet, but I don't know if you've picked up on it. This whole album is kind of this flashpoint of maturing and growing up. It's the critical point where you start to transition into maturity. Like when you put the surfboard away and you put on the business suit, do LSD. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) whatever but like wouldn't it be nice it's all about growing up and you still believe in me is about this relationship maturing i had to prove that i could make it but that's not me i'm learning who i am you know i'm waiting for the everything's about moving forward into the future and kind of abandoning what's behind you songs like this and wouldn't it be nice is what i came into this album expecting the majority of it to be well you got some of them i got a couple but for the most part i was disappointed which one it was definitely i'm fairly certain pink floyd right was the one that i said that it was like the biggest disappointment we had done on the podcast yeah that only knew their super super popular stuff this is the same way where it was just another big letdown for me because it just wasn't what i expected based off of what i had heard wow interesting stuff i understand because that's the way i felt when i first listened to it too it's grown on me since i've come around but first time it can be rough well the beach boys version of sloop john b made it to number 271 on rolling stone's 500 greatest songs of all time list nice so i mean that's a that's a pedigree just a fun song you know it's got that fun rhythmic beat and it's simple enough lyrics it's super easy to sing along to yeah i know right it's so catchy what you might not know is this is based on a real thing a sloop right, is a kind of ship, and this particular one is named the John B. It was a real ship. It sunk at Governor's Harbor in the Bahamas somewhere around 1900, and it was discovered in 1926. But what a what a power middle of this album, right? We have Sloop John B, and then it's the one-two punch, because we go right into God Only Knows. Yeah, this one's all right. What do you mean it's all right? I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know if you're being serious, or you're just trying to, like, tweak the nerve that you just tweaked. What do you mean it's all right? <laughs> Uh, No, it's just all right. It doesn't make Connor top three. It doesn't? Let me tell you something, okay? Paul McCartney, you know, the Beatle, has called this the best song ever written. And it doesn't make your top three? I disagreed with him. It was all right. It was upper middle of the pack. You're the ballad guy. This is the ballad. I know. This is the good ballad, not even one of the bad ones. I know. This whole album, the majority of this album is like dreamy, trippy ballads. And I didn't like most of it. this, This was a whole role reversal for me. I'm having an identity crisis over here. My favorite ones were the fast-paced ones. I don't, I don't know what you want from me. Wow. It was a fantastic instrumental song that was ruined by those floaty, ethereal lyrics. Yeah, wow. It's just the way they were singing it ruined it for me. I'm shocked a little bit. The song, you're right, it, it features... For me, that sound that they have when they're singing only works on the faster-paced songs. Well, I mean, you're right that the instruments are outstanding. It features another slew of unusual instruments like the harpsichord and the french horns very uh, abnormal stuff but you don't like the lyrics no i like the lyrics no i think you're misinterpreting me oh you just don't like the vocals vocals is probably the best word i should be using it's so interesting he opens the song with the line i may not always love you and brian wilson actually hated that because like what's that to start off your big love song right But co-writer Tony Asher, he fought to keep that in the song because he loved that take on it. They used that line to springboard into the next image. I might not always love you, but I'm going to love you until the stars are gone, which is... Pretty much forever. (laughs) And what a beautiful image. I don't know. Just to have stars above you. Now, what would have happened if they released this song and then then all the stars died? (laughs) It was like, oh, no. (laughs) I don't think we'd be around to talk about it. (laughs) I think something would have gone wrong. (laughs) They, like, predicted the doomsday. Yeah, maybe. 
I think I've maybe heard this one before, and it's just one that I never really paid attention to because it wasn't their fast-paced stuff. Yeah, this is one of the ones that was on my greatest hit CD, so I've known it forever. <laughs> the next track is is another interesting story, and it's kind of got a companion track to go with it. I don't know if you listen to both. Both are on Spotify. The next track, officially, as it was released, is I Know There's an Answer, but it started out as a song called Hang On to Your Ego. I did. I went and listened because, again, they're all there on Spotify, right? Yeah. I listened to what they called drug like drug themed version of it that's exactly what it was basically yeah the original version was hang on to your ego brian wrote that song during his second ever acid trip and it was kind of a a brutal song a little bit just it's mostly the same song but the lyrics of the chorus have been changed yeah the hang on to your ego lyrics instead of i know there's an answer they go hang on to your ego hang on but I know that you're going to lose the fight. I don't really know where the drugs come into play into that. Well, the drugs come into play, I guess, just in the context of the rest of the song. None of that sounds drug-related to me. I don't know. People get defensive, hang on to your ego. They trip through the day and waste all their thoughts at night. It's in there. Not enough that I felt like it needed change. It's always been a weirder song to me to listen to. Really? Uh, it sounds like a carnival a little bit, right? It's kind of got that, that peppy little... Not like that exactly. Yeah, not, but... But it's definitely a strange kind of pep behind. I know there's an answer. Strange kind of pep. I feel like that's a good way to sum up a lot of these songs. Yeah. That weird trippy dreaminess uh, is a strange kind of pep. (laughs) I guess it is. It's an okay song. It's an okay song for an okay album. Guess if you want to call it that. The next song is Here Today. Another fast-paced song. It is another fast-paced song. It's it's my least favorite of them. It, compared to like Sloop John B and Wouldn't It Be Nice, it's not as good. Yeah, from a listenability standpoint, I guess it's easier to click into and get with. Yeah. But it is just kind of here. I don't think it adds much to the album. I agree. So my note, I, w- I agreed with you. Uh, but the way I phrased it was, this is the kind of song I would have expected to fill out the middle rankings of this album, but yet it ended up going up towards the top because of how disappointed I was with some of the other stuff. Wow. It doesn't make top three or carnival mention. This would have been bog standard middle for me in, in an album where it was all stuff like wanted to be nice and sloop jumpy. Fair enough. Also, is that a kazoo? It, I don't want to back up. <laughs> I had a note that I really wanted to bring up on uh, I Know There's an Answer. I just now saw it. Is that a kazoo towards the end of that song? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. I honestly think it probably was. I think it was. I got strong kazoo vibes. I think it was, and that's just another <laughs> little bit of charm for this album. Another thing that makes it unique, Speaking I guess. Speaking of all the unique in- instruments that they use, it was just like, that gave me strong kazoo vibes. One more, throw it into the mix, you know? Anyway, back to here today. Back to here today. <laughs> this is another one. They get into these songs where they just get these poppy little songs, and I think they try too hard with the simple lyrics, like bad, sad, wrong, long. Yeah, but they've been pretty simple on their lyrics through most of it, I think. It's mid-60s pop. I don't know how much I can expect from it legitimately. I think God Only Knows was really their big standout lyric for lyrical complexity. More or less, yeah. But that's here today. I guess we just weren't made for these times. <laughs> that's the next song. I, I just wasn't made for these times. <laughs> so I forgot to take notes on the first two thirds of this song. That's how badly I zoned out. Wow. That's like eight seconds. <laughs> it is a shorter song. 
<laughs> I didn't come back to reality and stop dissociating and start taking notes again until what I think was the theremin or something came in during that instrumental break. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I got theremin vibes out of that. I don't know if that's what that instrument was or not. It woke me up and I was like, oh, I need to take notes on this song. And then my very next word was, oh, great, it's over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's over. It's a quick one. It's another sad song. And I think in terms of the theme of growing up and maturing, this is the song that most encapsulates that, I guess, in a sad way, right? I, I keep looking for a place to fit in. I'm, I'm too old to identify with the younger crowd. I'm not old enough to have the respect of the older generation. You know, you're, you're stuck in that weird limbo stage. Yeah, and the chorus <laughs> literally is sometimes I feel very sad. Yeah, well. <laughs> I guess I just wasn't made for these times. It's just kind of a sad, lonely song. Every time I get the inspiration to change things around, no one wants to help me look for places. Yeah, it's a real bummer for a beach band. <laughs> I know. It's a real... <laughs> downer of a song you could you could cry along with him in this one really it turns on the waterworks and and in that regard i think their vocals that you've kind of thrown aside for everything else on the album this is the spot where those weepy sad vocals work the best with the music in terms of slower songs at least yeah but you know what you don't have to worry about vocals at all on the next song it's the second of two instrumental tracks and the title track pet sounds yeah my first note on this was title track time it better come in clutch if it wants to save the album and then my very next note was wow it did (laughs) it did did what i told it to it was great i didn't realize it was instrumental when you know it started yep and so i was like oh i like this it was my favorite of the two instrumentals easily yeah and it's what knocked let's go away for a while the other instrumental out of the top three and down the honorable mention okay that's a good pick I paused between this song and the next one to go add it to my uh, instrumental playlist. Oh, wow. It made a playlist cut for you right away. Yeah, I I was like, I need to put this on the instrumental playlist. Well, good. I'm glad you liked it. There's, you know, a lot of talk and speculation about why the song and the album are called Pet Sounds. One guess that people have taken is that it's named after Phil Spector. I saw that. He's kind of the legendary producer. He's known for his, like, wall of sound production technique. And, of course... Pet sounds, P.S., are Spectre's initials. Yeah. The other, I guess, conjecture out there, I don't know whether it's really confirmed or not, is that Pet Sounds is like uh, Brian Wilson's name for these tracks. You know, he says everybody has songs that they like or understand, like that they connect with. And so this collection of songs are his little pet sounds. I can I can totally buy that. And not to mention, their pets do make some sounds on this album. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> there are some dogs barking and just the works. So Pet Sounds, I guess, is a fitting title. Fitting enough. I like the instrumental. I think it's a good track. It's so good. I'm always a sucker for a good instrumental. And then we have, I guess, what's always been a standout track to me that closes out the album, Caroline No. And this is the song that knocked Let's Go Away for a while out of the honorable mention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you keep knocking them down. At least the album ended strong for you. I told you back when we talked about that song, I told you back when we talked about it that it was going to get knocked down by some stuff later in the album. I didn't think it would be this late. I honestly thought God Only Knows would get a, a little bit of a anything. <laughs> did not i guess not caroline no was the only single that brian wilson released under his own name with Capitol records really it's a great ballad it all started when a stoned brian wilson misheard the sentence 
Carol I know. Someone was talking about a woman named Carol, an ex, I think. One of the members of the band has had an ex, and her name was Carol. So he said the sentence, Carol I know. And Brian Wilson went, holy crap, I'm going to go write this song. And then he wrote Caroline, no. <laughs> yeah, that's how it happened. He's like, look at this thing I wrote based off of what you said. He's like, I didn't say that. I didn't say this. <laughs> He's like, what? Who's Caroline? <laughs> Brian Wilson calls it a farewell song, and it is remarkably sad. I think it's the biggest heartache on the album, maybe at all. And a goodbye song is such a good way to end an album, because you're saying goodbye to the album. Yeah, it's all about this girl who's changed, and how their love has changed as they've grown apart. Yeah. It's another coming-of-age story of sorts. It starts off with this very tangible stuff, right? Where'd your long hair go? You lost your happy glow. Like, there's visually a change in you. But then verse two takes it in a different direction. The, the way that our thoughts about each other have changed, they're different. Yeah. And then the bridge is just, it, it'll tug at your heartstrings. It's so sad to watch a sweet thing die. Oh, Caroline, why? This song also, this was the first song on the album that that slower song worked for me. And I think it's because they were a little more subdued on this one. And that's why then when I noticed that there was stereo versions, I went, oh crap, maybe that was the issue. Maybe, yeah. It's great. I think it's the perfect way to close out this album about regretting growing up. I disagree. Really? I think the perfect way to close it out is with a choo-choo train. <laughs> what? Yeah, I guess they decided that too because there is indeed a train at the end of this song. It came out of nowhere. I was like, oh, this definitely has to be honorable mention now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, the, the thing about the train, I guess, is it could symbolize leaving, right? Getting on the train out mm-hmm. of town and not looking back. But yeah, I mean, that's the last song on the album. It's one of my favorites. Probably top three. You, no, no, no. You don't get to start having a top three. I know, but if I did, uh, Caroline No might be in it. <laughs> if you get a top three, I get top six. I'm not going to do it. Nope, I'll take that top three away. <laughs> that would have been almost every song on Ingrid Andrus. <laughs> you would have left one out if you got a top six. <laughs> anyway, I guess it's about time we get anyway, into the final it's spin. bonus tracks time. Nope, bonus track time. I'm going to need you to go to YouTube and pull up Trombone Dixie. Oh, yeah, I know... Of this, I haven't listened to it ever. Yeah, and I need you to because it would have made top three for me. Trombone Dixie is an unused instrumental song that was created during the recording sessions for Pet Sounds. Uh, Brian Wilson just kind of had it sitting around in his stack of songs that were unfinished. And while he was messing around with the band, had them just kind of play it. So they have the recording of it, but it never got used for anything. And it's great. It heavily features the trombone, as the name Trombone Dixie would suggest, and other brass instruments. Yeah. I guess we'll do a surprise bonus track. Yeah. <laughs> sure, why not? This song's also on my instrumental playlist, and so I was really sad when I saw it wasn't on the list of things we were going to talk about, and so I'm putting it there. <laughs> Fair enough. It's not a part of the official album. The official yeah. album closes with Caroline No, but, you know, if you want more Beach Boys content, if you were blown away by this album like I was and Connor was not, here it is. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> I was blown away by it in the wrong direction. That's bad. It's, it's a great album. It's one of the best. Anyway, let's listen. Three, two, one. Yeah, this is good. It's got that same plucky guitar sound, and the brass really rounds it out. The, instantly starts out with that brass kind of wailing. The bass is really nice, too. I like the drums. And you're right, the trombone does a, a stellar job here. I just love it so much. As a brass player myself, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I understand that. And then that higher octave for the trombone there. I like that chord change. Mm-hmm. As usual, Brian Wilson just 
just nails music theory, knocks it kind of out of the park. Yeah, like I said the instruments are great. And again, the speed up, slow down, like changing tempo. It's not any longer than any of the other songs on this record, but it feels so long. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I, it flies by for me every time I listen to it. I love it. Brian was quoted saying that he said, I was just fooling around one day uh, with the musicians and I took that arrangement out of my briefcase and we did it in 20 minutes. It was nothing. There was really nothing in it. That's so interesting to call that song nothing. I mean, it's... I know, it's so good! Well, it's good. However, I agree with the decision to cut it from this album because it does not match the vibe in the slightest. It would not have belonged on this album. It's very happy. No, I agree. Yeah, even the other instrumental songs don't have this same, I guess, robustness about them. So this would kind of be a sore thumb. But this is what I would have expected on the album. You know, again, I'm used to happy, fast Beach Boys, and so that kind of instrumental is what I would have expected. Sure. Am I allowed to move into Final Spin now? Did we do it? No, another bonus track. No, kidding. (laughs) Yeah, great. (laughs) It's a very interesting album. Did you walk away with a favorite song? It's hard to beat, wouldn't it be nice? I know. It It is hard to beat, but wouldn't it be nice if they did? And so I guess the two songs on the playlist, if you're taking Wouldn't It Be Nice, the other one will have to be God Only Knows From Me. Whatever problems you've imagined with the vocals on that one are far surpassed by the excellence of the music and the arrangement, to me. And the lyrics. I mean, you, you already said it was the strongest lyrical moment on the album. I don't yeah, think right, it's outrageous it. to give that the second slot. I'll allow it. So music, for me... This album is sneakily good musically. I think especially if you listen to the mono mix, I guess like you did and like I've done most times, it's easy to get lost in that. But the music is phenomenal. So many unique chord changes, so many stellar harmonies and off-the-wall melodies. I think the music is just pretty phenomenal. I'm giving it a very strong 88. Lyrics come across as a little dated listening to this in 2022, which feels like an unfair standard to judge it by. But, I mean, we talked about some of these songs. Let's, like, if you accept the ones where the lyrics are stellar, like Wouldn't It Be Nice and some of the others, and then you look at songs like Here Today or I Know There's an Answer, the lyrics are prone to just not impress you very much. I'm giving lyrics an 86 because I think that's just where the balance lands. Instruments of production, like you've said and like I've agreed with, It's got to be the strongest point on this album. They use so many instruments from like plucking pianos with paper clips to kazoos and theremins and dogs and sheep and trains. And it's kind of just this hodgepodge mess that somehow works itself into a bit of a masterpiece from a production standpoint, just for the overall excellence of the instruments, just the way everything sounds, giving it a a 98 on instruments and production. That's, that's, I can, I can agree with that number that works. Ah, I wasn't sure whether you're going to say that's outrageous or like that's perfect. So I'm glad that we're on the same page. No, that's, it's pretty perfect. And then overall vibe, like I've just mentioned for a concept record, everything, it's just like a puzzle piece into this one cohesive experience. I really think it's pretty strong. So vibe's getting an 88 from me. All right. According to the math department, that brings our score, weighted score, to an 89.4. 89.4. Number 91. Top 100 album here for me. Really? A top 100 album for you? Absolutely. And honestly, it maybe should be higher. Well. I, I think this is an album that you, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. And I think. And I put nothing into it. I think it. you've put very little into it at this point, and I'm hoping. Well, what I put. No, I put a lot into it. Just what I got out wasn't what I expected. Like I said, I came into this expecting to love it, and I was disappointed because it just didn't meet what I was expecting. Maybe it's the shock factor for you. For me, 
top three. Wouldn't it be nice? Sloop John B. Pet Sounds. With a honorable mention going to Caroline No. Caroline, yes. <laughs> and then shout out to Trombone Dixie. That would have been top three <laughs> had it actually been on the album. For me, it's their vocals don't work on those slower, more dreamy, trippy songs for me. Which is like half the album. Yep, that's most the album, and it's not what I was expecting. And so, overall, this has been the biggest disappointment for me since Pink Floyd. Wow, you just really hate a lot of albums that people love. Which is fine, you're allowed You're allowed to, but... Yeah, I'm controversial like that. You're Connor-troversial. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, that's a Not new really, thing now, but... with Connorable Mention, your Connor-troversial <laughs> opinions. I equate the sound of this and, like, the feel and vibe I got out of it in, like, the same realm of, like, the head and the heart and Pixie Queen. Like, that was the same vibe and feel. Oh, yeah. And so I kind of want to rank it around there, too, because, again, a lot of it is how I I walk away from it feeling. And I'm feeling, I remember feeling with Head in the Heart and Pixie Queen. But I don't know. Like I feel like it needs to go between them. So that means, and you're not going to like hearing this, Mr. Top 100. Oh, goodness. <laughs> that means, oh, for, let me clarify. That means he's either about to say it's the bottom of the sixes or the top of the fives. Yeah, I'm absolutely about to say to you the top, bottom of the six or the top of the five. And I don't know. Top of the five feels too low. Bottom of the six feels too high and leaves a bad taste in my mouth. So it's like, I don't know where to put it. Do you feel bad giving this album a six? I was very disappointed by this. What I think I'm going to do, I'm going to leave the audience on a cliffhanger here. What? I'm going to go listen to it on stereo. Oh, and decide if it belongs. I'm telling you where it's going. It's going between the two of them. So it's your top of the fives, bottom of the sixes. But if you want to know where it ends up, you're going to have to go check out the spreadsheet to see exactly where it ended up. Do you have a Do you have a unit in mind for your not score? I do have a unit. So it's going to get a... So we can calibrate it. Yeah. Th- you know, look at the calibration in order. Five or six, race horses of the sky out of ten. It's not even relevant. That's pigeons. That's from the <laughs> other episode. That's from the start of this episode. We spent the beginning of this episode talking about pigeons. Yeah, but like that was notably intrusive on the Beach Boys episode. <laughs> yeah, well, the Beach Boys were noticeably intrusive on what I liked, so. What? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> well, that brings us to a close on Final Spin, I guess. An open-ended close. I'm curious to hear what the audience thought about this album. If we were really kind of starkly divided on it again, let us know in the comments. Let us know on social media, at SpinItPod on Twitter and at SpinItPod Official on Instagram. We've also got ways to get connected at www.spinitpod.com. And uh, yeah, I think this was a good episode. I really had a lot of fun talking about this one. And the facts were great. The stories were great. Even though it didn't rank too high on the list, it was still a fun one to talk about. Right. Have a great week and keep spinning. Keep spinning. We need to get a spin it pigeon department for all the racing we're going to do. Pigeon racing department? What do you mean we? What's this we and lifetime membership? That's all you. You're not going to race pigeons? I'll need my own department for all my pigeons, though. Nope. That way we can, you know, charge the the sunflower seeds or whatever pigeons eat. You don't even know what pigeons... Check your packets again. There's probably (laughs) some info. I'm sure it's in the packet. I'm sure it's in there somewhere.